All right, venturing forth into a new chapter. Um, they've got some little comments at the end of chapter one, but it's not worth focusing on, and I think it will be a good contrast to where we're heading in chapter two anyway, so uh, I can make some comments, but I would love somebody to read the chapter, Titus 2 for us, 1 through 15. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, and love, and endurance. Likewise, teaching the old women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this, in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thank you. All right, so we are nearing the end in uh, chapter 1. Chapter 2, as you just heard, I think a good way to sum it up is just the uh, displaying the transforming power of the of the. Uh, uh, the grace of God or the gospel of God, you say either one, um, and the resultant life that comes from it. Uh, so there's a direct contrast as light is to darkness to where we end in chapter one with uh, the false teachers I think he has in mind, the Judaizers, but more generally people who claim to know God but lead ungodly lives, and especially bad if they're leaders, if they're teachers. So um, we ended up with the statement, rebuke them sharply, because Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Rebuke them sharply so that they'll pay no attention to Jewish myths and the commands of those who reject the truth. So those are the Cretans. Those are the people they're trying to reach. That's the field they're trying to work. But you also have these false teachers, the Judaizers as well, that are in Paul's mind. And so he talks about them in verse 15 of chapter 1, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. All right, so what does he mean by that? To those who are impure, to those who are pure, everything's pure, but to those who are corrupted, everything's corrupted. What is he talking about? You don't think good cause. Evil. Yeah, I think, Herb, you nailed it. You hit the, the nail right on the head. It has to do with how they think. Pure people think pure thoughts. 
and they look at the world in a pure or godly way. They're not say, he's not saying to the pure, they don't think that there is anything but pure things in the world. He's not saying that. He's just saying they think purely. They think in a right way. But corrupt people don't. Everything they think, the road all tends toward the lusts of their flesh and their, their corruptions and their evil. That's, I think, what he means. And he's specifically zeroing in on, um, on these, uh, I think, leaders, false teachers. Uh, all things um, are corrupt. They're impure. And he says their minds and their consciences are corrupted. So that's what Herb was saying. Their thought process is dark. They have dark minds and they speak dark words. What does it mean when he says their consciences are corrupted? Well, it seems to be a, almost a binary choice, too. There's no room in the middle. It might be one way or the other, but it's clearly you're either pure or you're impure. Yeah, I mean, the Bible ultimately presents the world that way. Children of the devil versus children of God. Children of the light versus children of the darkness. It seems to be that way. Anyone else? The but I think consciences are, are just dead. They've been numbed by constant evil thought, and they're just dead. What is it, Chris? What is conscience? What does that mean? I mean, Paul talks about it a lot. What is a conscience? That's our, our, our inner man, really, our thought processes that go on inside us for, for good or, or evil. Okay. Yeah, I believe it. It's, a, it's an original wiring that's in every human being that comes from God and teaches people basic morality, basic right and wrong, there is a law of God imprinted on the character and the minds of every single human being. That's the basis of the judgment of God against people who have never heard of the Bible. They've never heard of the Bible, but they have God's moral code written on them, and they know they're doing wrong when they violate it because their conscience accuses them. This is Romans 2. So they have a law written inside themselves Similar to don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. You know, they, they, they basic morality and they violate it. And, and so that's the inner wiring of law inside. And the conscience is the voice of that saying, do right and don't do wrong. Or you did right or you did wrong. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I'm saying they, you, you mentioned it already. Uh, Roman, my mind went to Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Exactly. Uh, so the conscience is accusing or excusing? Yeah. And the conscience is given as a gift of God. All right? But as Chris implied, somebody can have such a long, hardened career in sin that the conscience becomes permanently impaired or seared, something like that. What, what happens then? What's going on with that person's conscience? To have a, let's say, a seared conscience. They're not convicted of doing wrong, like they should be, even though they're not, you know, in the truth. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's weakened so that it's not effective anymore. It doesn't uh, affect them. Yeah. You hear the comment, they have no conscience. Effectively, it seems they don't. Or they actually justify what they've done. You know, it's really, uh, so that, that can happen. People can feel very, very guilty initially. It's some things they do, but the more they do it, they don't feel it anymore. 
So the seared, it's almost like a, the, uh, like a hand that doesn't have any sensation anymore because it's been burned so many times, all this, all this scar tissue. Uh, and they, they don't feel anything anymore. And that's a very devastating uh, place to be. Now, how about the conscience in the life of a, of a Christian? Uh, is that an issue? Or we don't need it anymore, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. How would, we, how would you harmonize indwelling Holy Spirit and conscience? How do they work together? Spirit informs our conscience so that we are sensitive to the things of God, to His Word and, and uh, how we should respond to it. So would you say it would be right to say as part of the overall healing work of Jesus Christ, the healer, through the Spirit as He heals our consciences? So the conscience starts to, to work right again. And it tells us, do right, don't do wrong. And now we're better informed than we were in pagan days of what that is. We've been instructed now by the word of God what right and wrong is. And the conscience is healed and says, do the right thing now. Don't do the wrong thing. And, and now the differentiation between the voice of conscience and the voice of an indwelling Holy Spirit in a mature Christian is almost indistinguishable. I don't know that you could distinguish it. I don't know how you would. Um, but they are it's uh, d dealt with separately. Like Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So there's still some distinctions made. Even in the highest level, most mature Christian, the conscience is still a thing separate from the Holy Spirit, but, but related. It's a divine gift that God the Father has given us to make us more aware yeah. So that we can function in the way that he needs us to do properly. Yeah, right. I, I think maybe one thing you could say is that uh, one of the distinctions is uh, the Holy Spirit will never direct you wrong. And your conscience, no matter how mature you are, may on occasion still not be quite right. Yeah, that's good. That's a good distinction. But it's just good. It's good to be aware of this reality of what conscience is, um, how it functions in non-Christians. Uh, how it functions in Christians, and, and just be aware. But here he says, these people's consciences are corrupted. Their consciences aren't doing them any good. You know, and that can happen. You could, you could imagine somebody steeped in paganism that feels guilty for not offering sacrifices to a pagan deity on an appointed day, and they feel guilty for that. So that would be a corrupted conscience. The, the, the conscience is linked to a bad truth system. The conscience is telling them to do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing, but they don't know what that is. <clears throat> but these people, their conscience is even pushing them in certain directions. We could see somebody that's, like, let's say, very loyal to Adolf Hitler, an SS individual, swore an oath of allegiance, you know, and, and would do some heroic, evil things in service to the Fuhrer. And so the conscience, their conscience is just corrupted at that point. They're doing... Absolutely, they have a sense of loyalty and dedication to a very bad cause. See what I'm saying? So I think that's, that's an example of how a conscience can be uh, corrupted. So one that, has, one that walks in righteousness, that is a belief. Mm -hmm. And then yet there is a besetting sin that, that continues to pop up. Our only hope there is to go repent and flee to Christ and start over again. Yeah with asking for forgiveness. Yeah. And then I, I think about Paul, and he says, I do the things I don't want to do. So yeah. 
is he saying that for a Christian, they can still step the wrong way and have to continually repent and go back? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, Paul's confession of sin in Romans 7, I think, um, is an insight into his struggles long after his conversion. Um, I understand that some theologians think that that's pre-conversion, but it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit, um, in the, it doesn't fit his language. And we just know there's no perfect people. Paul wasn't a perfect man. He does say in Acts, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That's a very helpful statement. So I would just say, don't do anything that would violate your conscience. If you know something's wrong, don't do it. That's all. And, and if, if, you, if, if you are trying to distinguish whether that's the voice of the indwelling spirit, or the, it doesn't matter. Just don't do something you just know is wrong. And if you violate your conscience, like you're saying, then, then it, uh, you, know, you have to confess your, your sin. And I, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to know that your conscience can get weak in certain areas if you have habitual sin in that area. Conscience gets worn out. It's like I told you and told you and told you. You're not listening to me. And, and so that your conviction in that area gets weak. And, and I think that's the gradual hardening of the heart in sin that can happen to a Christian that, that Hebrews 3 warns about. Don't let that happen. So I think that it's very complex. But here now, let's get back to Titus 1. He's talking about people who claim to know God but don't. And he, they are corrupted in their minds and their consciences are corrupted. That's what he's talking about here now. And so they claim to uh, know God, but by their actions, they deny them. What does he deny him? What does that mean? They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. It's kind of like what Titus um, was told by Paul, the type of people to look for. And these people would, would be not the type of people to look for, and yet they might call themselves followers. And so, in other words, the works, the works the, should show what's in their heart. Right. And they're not in, in the line with, you know, Christ's teachings through the Bible. Absolutely, Jim. So uh, you look at 116. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for what? Any good work. Any good work. That sets up chapter 2 perfectly. What's chapter 2 all about? Being impure. Look at it. What is, what is he getting at in these 15 verses? It's a repeated theme. Self-control. Self, yeah. Setting a good example. Zealous for what? What should you be zealous for? Good works. Good works. And where do those good works come from? Right doctrine. The combination of right doctrine, the grace of God, and a lifetime of good works. That's Titus 2. That's what it is. And therefore, 116 is a direct contrast. It's like, by contrast, now let's talk about real Christianity, what it really looks like in the lives of various people. So that's going to be the unifying theme, which, which is the good works that are the proof of good doctrine and, and, a, and of holy life. And he tells you right at the beginning, he's contrasting, because he says, but as for you. Yeah, yeah so there's a direct contrast here. So I, I think this is, this is really just going back to what Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. Remember the whole problem there is wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers that look good on the outside, but inside there's corruption. Look at their fruit. And this is a by their fruit, you will know them chapter. Titus 2 is all about that. It's about good works and as a proof of sound doctrine. 
So that's that's what we'll go. All right. So let's uh, look at the at Titus two. You've already heard the chapter. Let's look at the ba the main questions. I've been talking about it the last minute or two, but what does this section teach about the transforming power of the grace of God? There's some pretty wonderful statements about that in Titus two. What do you see about the transforming power of the grace of God in this chapter? Verse 11 through 13. Yeah, that's worth the price of admission, Greg. Go ahead and read it again. 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So that, that's phenomenal. All right, so go back to my question. What does this chapter teach you about the transforming power of the grace of God? What does the grace of God do in somebody's life? Changes Cretans. Makes changes, changes Cretans. <laughs> it makes them better Cretans. They're still Cretans. We want them to live in Crete. We don't want them to all evacuate the island. But, you know, tell me more. What else does it do? What does it do in their lives? It takes the old and, and crucifies it and makes it all new. It's, uh, it's a complete 180. It's, uh, the, the grace of God changes everything in the life of the sinner that's been redeemed. Brings joy, peace, better understanding, comprehension. Yeah, putting good work, works on display. So, so good. So that's what we're talking about. The grace of God transforms the way you live. And if you don't see that transformed life, then you have every right to question whether the grace of God was there. If there hasn't been a change in the life, that's the grace of God hasn't been there. It changes things. Secondly, what is the connection between how we live our daily lives and how appealing the Word of God is to outsiders? That's a kind of a, a recurring theme in this chapter, making the teaching about our God and Savior attractive, making it look good. So what is the connection between the way Christians live and how appealing the doctrine is to outsiders? How do you see that connection? Well, we see it in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay. So that the word of God might not be reviled. And then again in verse 8, having... So that an opponent may be put to shame, has nothing new to say about this. Okay, very good. And uh, what about verse 10? But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's three times. Yeah. We're trying to make this thing look good. It seems a little bit like marketing. I don't know. What do you think? We're, like, so we're kind of marketing the gospel here, making it attractive, yeah. making it look good. It's proper witnessing. Proper witnessing. All right. But it's a lie if it doesn't look good. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's let your light so shine before that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Very much so. So the virtues that come from a real Christian life, the, the implication here will be attractive to non-Christians. That's the basic premise here. Do you agree that that's a premise here? If you are living a virtuous Christian life, that is the way you make the gospel, the word of God, attractive to people. Why is that? Why would it be attractive? A virtuous Christian life full of good works is attractive to outsiders. 
Well, they just think the results of a, a broken world and live in it. Mm -hmm. They may like the alternative. Yeah. Yeah, they, they see the, the brokenness, you know, selfishness, aggressive selfishness. Very good. Anyone else on this? This is really an important theme, isn't it? It appeals to their conscience. Say again? It appeals to their conscience. To their conscience, yeah. I mean, it's like, I want to live a good life. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do it. And then there's this group of Christians in their city, in Corinth or in Ephesus or Philippi, and they're living a different kind of life. And, and why? You were that way. Mm -hmm. So it's your opportunity. Yeah. Just say why you were that way. Yeah, I mean, let me describe, you know, some of this. Um, this is a well-known passage, but I'll just, just read it. Um, see, see how this fits into the theme we're developing here, which is the way that the church lives makes the gospel attractive to outsiders. Um, all right, so uh, Acts uh, 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Right? Then what happened next? Ananias and Sapphira came along, remember? Lied about some property, remember that whole thing? What happened, what happened then? <laughs> they dropped dead without a hand being laid on them. Individually, one at a time, two separate times. First the husband, then the wife. Well, then what happened? It says, uh, great fear seized the whole church and everyone who heard about these events. So that's not the church. I would call those outsiders. All right. Then it says later, no one else dared to join them. Well, that makes sense after that whole Ananias and Sapphira thing. <laughs> it's like, do you want to join that group? I mean, you better, you tell a fib, a little bit of a lie, you know, you hold back some money. Look what happens. No one else dared to join them. Listen, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Whoa. What does that mean? People realize that's a serious group of people there characterized by, they don't know what to call it, but the word is holiness. And they're like afraid, and, but listen to the next verse. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That like, that's like an open contradiction. No, it's not. It's a process. The outsiders knew about them, saw the way they shared everything they had, heard about a story, found out what happened, that they sold some money but only were a part of it and lied. They dropped dead. Nobody laid a hand on them. People are in awe. They're afraid to join. But then they hear the gospel. They realize what the message is. They repent of their sins, and they join. I would call that healthy church growth, wouldn't you? That's, that's a healthy church right there. And that's a great reputation that that church has in that community. So that's, I think, go back to Titus. You can see the whole thing at work there. That the, the, the 
gospel adorns or makes beautiful the lives of the people there and vice versa. Their lives make the gospel appealing and say, look, I want to be like that. I would like to be the kind of person that would sell a property and donate the money and not worry about what comes back to me. I'd like to, I'd like to live like that, but I don't know how. And then you're meeting some people and you find out. So I think that's what's going on. Any other comments about the connection between how we live and how attractive the gospel is to outsiders? The contrast of these Cretans, as always liars, eaten beast, and lazy gluttons to then in, in uh, seven here, um, showing integrity, dignity, and sound speech is stark. Right. That's very appealing and... and uh, well, thanks for mentioning that again, because again, that's that pool of population that they're drawing converts out of. So the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, except the converts, the Cretans who aren't that way anymore. Now they're not liars anymore. They're honest in their business dealing, right? They're hard workers. They're self-controlled. How important is that whole self-control theme, both in chapter one with the elder stuff and chapter two now also, self-controlled. We'll get to the four categories, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, but self-control keeps popping up in all of those, self-controlled. All right, they're not lazy gluttons anymore. They're changed people. So the contrast is a beautiful thing, and that's going to spur the gospel on. People are like, yeah, I used to be like that, but that's not who I am anymore. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Any other comments before we go on? So you mentioned, uh, health, uh, you mentioned the healthy church. Mm -hmm. So we can say somewhat in this church, there are people all during the week that are in other people's homes that, mm -hmm. are, that are helping with whatever need is there. And then the church as a whole with the benevolence is healthy. Yeah. So there's kind of a theme throughout the church. Yeah. So true, Lynn, and you know, if I, I th I'm glad what you just did. You know, there are a lot of local churches represented in this Bible study here. Not all go to First Baptist Durham, but I think all of us, as we read these words, should have a, an uh, an ambition that our our local church would be like this, that we would be healthy like this. That's a, it's a, it's. I know it's a goal. It's something we're shooting for, but that's where we're heading. That's what we want to see. Feels like that in some ways um, that. The teaching here is to look, there's, don't discount the process. Um, when you were talking about it, uh, Barnabas getting uh, all the price of his land, and then Ananias and Sapphira wanting to get the same benefits of that, the same prideful strokes and attaboys that, that he got, but they wanted it at a discount. Discount rate. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it feels like to me that... Um, we all like the benefits of Christianity. We want to be looked at as holy and righteous and all that, but we want it at a discount. We sure. want to be able to sure. kind of hang on to the things of the world and not be all in. And it feels like what the encouragement here is from Titus is to, you know, to be all in. And so there's a seriousness to it, yeah. but there's also a joy. There's a self-control. All of these things come from being all in, not from trying to get it at a discount. Thanks. That's so good, Chris. It really is. And you know how it says in uh, Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. I feel like the Ananias and Sapphira must have been a lot of soul searching for everybody in that church. You know, they, they basically represented average sinfulness 
on the part of all of us, right? I think we all can see what they did, and we could easily have seen us doing it too. I think that's why there was so much fear. It's not like there was some extraordinary thing. It was like, look, that's kind of average sinfulness, isn't it? Yeah, but that's not okay. And so there must have been a lot of soul searching after that. I think still, centuries later, millennia later, you read that story and it's like, I could have done that. I could see doing that. And it's convicting. So, yeah, I love that. And Chris, the word process. There's definitely process language in chapter 2. You know, there's definitely mentoring going on, older men, younger, younger men, older women, younger women. There's a process going on. It's not perfection. There's some discipling going on. You're teaching people to be a certain way. It's going to take time, but that's the standard. I mean, praise God, he doesn't, we don't drop dead the first time we, we do something wrong. You know, I mean, there wouldn't be a church left, and the Lord knows that. I actually think Ananias Sapphire took a hit, hit, hit for the whole team. I, I think, I'm not saying they're in hell or heaven. I think, I hope they're in heaven. But I look on them kind of like, I, I noticed this before, it all has to do with A, the letter A. Adam, uh, Achan, and Ananias, all three kind of stood at the beginning of something, sinned, got pounded, and we all learned from it, right? So Achan stole something at Jericho that he shouldn't have done. You remember that whole thing. And it's like he ends up getting piled, rocks piled on him and his whole family for the benefit of the whole conquest of the promised land. It's like, from now on, do it my way. We understand that. All right, let's keep going. Um, all right, what does this section teach? I mean, it's still in main questions. What does this section teach about the roles of older men and women uh, in the life and witness of a healthy church? Older men, older women. Those, are, those categories in particular. It's a lot of verbs okay. in this text. Well, if you just follow the verbs, I think you... Okay. Yeah, question. Okay. Um, like, give, give me an example. Well, you know, just to, to teach in verse mm -hmm. 2, he starts out there, he goes on in verse 3. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a theme through this first few verses of to teach, to teach, to teach, to teach. Yeah. Right. And then verse 6 goes to encourage. Mm -hmm. So all, all these are, are those positive verbs of yeah. what to do. That's so good. I love it. Anyone else? Roles of older men? Older women they must be sound in their doctrine <clears throat> and teach. Sound in their doctrine. Older men, older women, sound in the doctrine. Very, very good. So we're going to walk through this, um, but it's good. Now, finally, how should anticipating the second coming of Christ result in a life of holiness and good works? Do you see anything in this passage about the second coming of Christ? Don't be caught doing something bad. Yeah, definitely. And over and over there. <laughs> right. All right, so what verse mentions the second coming? Go ahead and read it, Chris. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there it is. That's second coming. I mean, no doubt. And so as we're waiting for the second coming, you know, all right, so what is the connection between a life of holiness and waiting for the second coming? So you said it. Don't do anything you don't want to be found doing when he comes. So if I'm truly anticipating Christ's return for right. me, right. then I should be willing to be about the Father's business and right. glorify him when he, when he shows up for me. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to think, what is the purpose of the second coming? What's he coming to do? Does Jesus have a plan? Is he coming to, for a purpose? Oh, yeah. To bring us. To, yeah, so it's, I would say positive and negative. He has a positive purpose toward us, 
and a negative person toward not us. Would you guys agree with that? So what's his negative uh, purpose toward those that are not his people? What's he going to do to them? He's going to destroy them. Why? You have to ask, why is he going to destroy them? Because of their sins. And he can't tolerate their sins. So if you look at that, um, Ephesians teaches this kind of thing, although it doesn't directly mention the second coming. It's there if you know what to look for. It says, um, um, in in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 3 and following, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of uh, impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Um, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, listen to this, because of such things the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. The wrath of God is coming. When does that happen? Well, again, it happens at the second coming of Christ. So you have to ask, why does he come with a sword metaphorically coming out of his mouth to slaughter his enemies? Because of their wickedness, because of their sins, because of those sins, wrath is coming. So don't do them. That's the whole point. Don't do them. So again, Second coming logic, second coming, therefore be holy, is many places in the, in the Bible. It's here, it's here in Titus 2, but it's there in lots of places. Any other thoughts on this? Because Christ is, is coming, be holy. You need to be holy. I, I think in terms too, Andy, yes, that's true of everybody except, and I would put that in there, except those who have... Uh, through Christ, you know, repented and been, been saved. Otherwise, you know, we're all in that sense. Yeah, we all deserve it. But the appeal in Ephesians 5 is don't live like that. He's not, God is not going to punish everyone who has been impure, had an impure thought. We are all, we're all in that category. We all were in that. <coughs> Ephesians 2 says all of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our lusts. We all did that. So he's not saying that, that everyone who is indulged in this is going to get slaughtered by Jesus at the coming. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's because of those sins that the wrath of God is coming. And so therefore God hates those sins, so therefore you should hate them too. And you should put them to death. That's the idea. Also, 1 John 3 very much teaches this, this link. The link is because of the second coming and the world that's coming after that, you should be holy now. All right, 1 John 3, Beloved, what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, that's second coming language, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now comes the ethics. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
So when does the purifying of yourself happen? Throughout your lifetime. Right now. Today. And for the rest of your life. Jesus isn't even coming yet. He has not come in today. But purify yourself. Get yourself ready. It's a holy world he's bringing. It's a righteous world. You look at the gates are open to the new Jerusalem. They stand open day and night, it says, or forever. Uh, Isaiah is the day and night language, but it says there is no night in Revelation. So the, the gates are open. Nothing impure will enter that city. But only those who do what is holy and righteous and good. So that's purify yourself. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you see a similar logic in Second Peter in uh, chapter 2 where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Can you take the sheet I handed you? Greg, take the sheet I handed you and flip it over. The discussion sheet. Do you have it? Yeah, just read it off the sheet. <laughs> Go ahead. Since you're doing that, let's just do it. Go ahead. Thank you. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the, of the heavens and fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Thank you. So, Greg, you and I have been in sync so many times, and I appreciate that. I very much appreciate that about you. But yeah, Second Peter 3 is a clear call to holiness or purity because of the world that's coming because of the world that's coming. And this is the whole thing. You know, the unbeliever, the pseudo-Christian kind of person who maybe believes in a second coming but doesn't, doesn't take the right attitude, um, says, look, I'm, my master's staying away a long time. I can kind of live how I want. It's just exactly the wrong way to think. So anyway, that's, uh, those are the main questions. Let's, let's look verse by verse. And let's start the first section, verse 1 through 8. Men and women, older and younger. All right, so that's what we're looking at. So just typical geek that I am, I saw this as a two-by-two two matrix, you know? So you got gender and age, you know? Men, women, old, young. Old man, old woman, young man, young woman. That's the matrix we got here. But it makes up the church, right? I mean, obviously children are important too, but he's talking specifically here about adults and ministry. But let's walk through it step by step. Um, you, however, you know, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. What does that mean, sound doctrine? Healthy. Said. Sound means healthy. All right. I, this is NIV that I, I'm working with. Anybody else, a different translation of verse 1. I heard a different one when somebody was quoting it early. Somebody read verse 1, 2, 1. And as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. All right, so that's interesting. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. What does that mean? What accords with sound doctrine? Accordance with? In accordance with. That's what NIV says. What does that mean? Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's true. Well, what does that mean? Well, music well, accord is two notes that, that sound. <laughs> so it lines up with it? It lines up with it. It agrees with it. It agrees with it. Why doesn't he just say you must teach sound doctrine? I mean, I think that would be a valid statement. You must teach sound doctrine. But he doesn't say that. It's who, it's who God is and what the Bible is being taught in the Bible. 
Okay, any other thoughts on why he doesn't say you must teach sound doctrine? He says you must teach what accords with sound doctrine. His reason consistent with. All right, I like that, consistent with. Why does he say that? Well, I'm thinking too in terms of Paul writing to Titus and he's telling Titus this, and I figure that Paul's probably had some role in teaching Titus. Yeah. So here's, here's what I say. What does it mean when I say you need to be able to connect the dots? What does it mean to connect the dots? It's just a metaphor we use, but what does that mean, to connect the dots? Take information from different places and bring it together. So you got two dots, and you're going to draw a line between them. You have to do that all the time with the Bible. The Bible makes assertions and gives scenarios that don't exactly line up with your life and don't exactly line up with your church. Your job is to connect the dots, apply it, make it fit rightly to the life, the 21st century American culture, line it up. I think that's what he means by what's consistent with sound doctrine. It lines up, it's right, but it's, it's an application. It's, a, it's an illustration of the truth, but it's right. Does that make sense? That's what you have to do with good teaching. You have to take the timeless, unchanging word of God and then bring it over across millennia. Like, you know, you, I'm reading through the Old Testament out of the Pentateuch, and you got a bunch of tent-dwelling sheep herders. It's never been my life. I was born in, an, in a, a Boston hospital while my dad was getting his PhD at MIT, grew up in Watertown uh, for the first two years, and then have lived in suburbs basically ever since. That's my, been my life. I don't know anything about livestock. <laughs> I mean, it's just not my life. But, you know... I am able to immerse myself in that patriarchal world and try to draw out timeless principles by which I can live my life. Does that make sense? So that's connecting the dots. You have to do that in good teaching. So, yeah, go ahead, please. It reminds me of, uh, I'm sure we all have seen it, you have something, a piece of paper with the dots on it, and yeah. you, you connect the dots and it makes a picture, you know. Yeah. It doesn't make a picture until you connect the dots. Yeah. Or it shows you what's there exactly and that's the thing you know uh, connecting the dots could be either application of timeless truths to specific lifestyles now which are not directly addressed like we would have to say um, automobile driving etiquette is it directly addressed in the books of the bible it can't be automobiles didn't exist Therefore, we're free to drive however we want? No. There are ethics, like the golden rule and, and others, that will teach you how to drive in a loving way. Does that make sense? And you, you're, you're... The DMV and the DOT handbooks. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. So I think it's connecting the dots application, but it's also filling in theology. The word of God isn't just what's clearly asserted in the Bible, but also what can be logically connected and deduced from it. That's equally the word of God. Does that make sense? So if you do a sound orchestration of truths and put them together rightly, that's the word of God true, too. So it's teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine. Anyway. So you do systematic theology? I think so. And also application. I would say do systematic theology, connect the dots theologically, and connect the dots applicationally. You're applying it well. That's how I would say teach what accords with sound doctrine. All right. You must do that, Titus. You must teach that. So, look, it's just amazing, amazing. In these pastoral epistles, teaching, and, and you said it too, teaching dominates. 
Why is the teaching ministry so important to Paul? Why does he talk about it all the time? Teaching, teaching, teaching. Well, it's by word. It's by word that, that back then, you know, that the, um, the correct principles and beliefs were to be passed along to others and conveyed to other people. It was electronic, you know, communication. Okay. And, and because of what you're saying about connecting the dots, it's not always obvious. And yeah. Older people with experience oftentimes see that better. Do you folks have a sense in the Old Covenant of who was entrusted with the teaching ministry for the people of God, for the Jews, the Israelites? Who was given that job? Yeah. Who were they? In the Bible, who were they? In the Old Testament. The priests, the Levites were entrusted. The Levites were entrusted the teaching rule. Malachi says the lips of a priest should impart knowledge. So the priests and the Levites were given the teaching role. Jesus said so in Matthew 23, that terrible chapter, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He said, the teachers of the law and scribes sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you to do, but don't follow their example because they don't practice what they preach. So Jesus upheld their teaching role. Now let me ask you a question. Let's zero in on the Levites. Let me, let me ask you a question. How well do you think the Levites did their job in the book of Judges? Do you guys know that book, the book of Judges? One of the common themes in, in Judges, everybody thinks this is the theme, but I don't think it is. I think it's related, but it's not exactly the theme. Everyone in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you remember the last like half of the book is about a Levite that goes from place to place trying to find some kind of place where he can be somebody's chaplain and get paid for it and all that? He's, it, we're just following this Levite and his concubine. Remember this whole thing? And it ends up such a nasty story that it's not almost any different at all than Sodom and Gomorrah. He ends up cutting up his Levite into pieces and sending her body all over Israel. Remember this whole story? You guys are all cringing. It's in the Bible, friends. I didn't write it. It's the kind of thing where you're reading with your kids, your pre-adolescent, you know, adolescent, and you kind of skip that part. You know, you're just like, what's a concubine? You know, I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, I was like, this is a mess. All right, the reason I bring it up, the reason I bring it up, I've, I've been on a kind of a recent project since I was teaching in, in Job and memorizing Ecclesiastes a couple years ago of asking why did the Holy Spirit include this book in the canon? Let's apply that to Judges. Based on what I just told you, what do you think might be the central lesson of the book of Judges? At least what Andy thinks possibly the central lesson of the book of Judges is. Well, I'd have a question. Was it, is it because... Nobody would step up and lead and teach. And so a woman finally did. Is that? Well, you got some of that. A woman did. I don't think that's a central theme, but Deborah basically when no one will step in and, and she's more of a leader, more of the leader, a military leader. But let me ask a question. In those days, Israel did uh, Israel had no king and everyone did what? What was right in his own eyes? How how did that work out for them? Badly. Then why didn't they know what was right? Why was what was right in their own eyes so wrong? The absence of teaching. Absence of teaching. 
And so I would say a possible theme of the book of Judges is this is what God's people look like when there is no faithful teaching of the word. They look just like pagans. It's a thought, anyway. I may be right, I may be wrong, I don't know. But I think it's at least a, it's, it's a contender for the overall unifying theme of the book of Judges and what it teaches us in the canon. So what does that say to me as a pastor? Teach the word. Teach the word. People will not know how to live. And it's going to get worse. We're living in increasing pagan times in America. It's going to get more and more pagan. We're being surrounded by people who do not know what's right. And their consciences will lead them to do wrong things. They'll think they're being virtuous and they're not because they're not educated well in the word of God. So teaching, it starts with teaching. All right, so you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. All right, now we get into the categories. Teach the older men to be temperate, my translation says, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance. All right, so first of all, before we get into the older men, what do you make of this two-by-two matrix? Men, women, old, young. What does it teach you? I mean, it's interesting to me. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Well, each has their own uh, life experiences and uh, levels of knowledge and, and, and uh, the ability to be looked up at. For sure. And uh, revered yeah. and to be influential. Very good. Uh, all their life, more experience. Okay, very good. Rick? Uh, also, I think, implies that they have different roles. Yes. And I would add, Rick, I would say indispensable. Indispensable roles. you got to have older men. Got to have younger men. Got to have older women. Got to have younger women, and they need to do their roles. So I think it just elevates each of those categories. Say, hey, we've got an important role to play here. Very important role to play. Let's do it well. So I, I, I like that, that, that sense of everyone feels like, hey, I've got a place at the table. I've got a job to do. I've got something important to do. All right, so I, I like that. That's good. Yeah. It strikes me that it highlights the value and wisdom of, of age that we should be learning from right now also. Okay. Tell me more about that age. I don't see, I don't see that currently, generationally, the younger folk are respecting the wisdom and the teaching that the olders have to share with them. No, I Stroke, negative, but compared to this time when they were revered yeah. because they had the wisdom. Yeah, ours is a very physical culture. We're into the body, you know, obviously sex, but also athleticism, fitness, you know, beauty. Those are young people's strengths. And, and they're not the older, like, like Oriental cultures, Western cultures have, or Eastern, sorry, Eastern culture, I meant to say, uh, really do honor the elder. They honor the older man, older woman, because of wisdom and experience. So you're right. Yeah. But even though we're not being, the older are not being honored, they still have the responsibility to do that teaching. Their, right. their role also carries a responsibility with it. For sure. He distinguishes older and younger. Can you read the very last thing he says in this chapter? The, the, the very last idea. Let no one disregard you. That's interesting. Mine says, let no one despise you. We'll go with each word, Dis disregard. What does that say to you, Chris? Let no one despise you. It's an interesting command. Live such a horrible life that they've got nothing against you. Yeah, and I think specifically 
like you're talking about, we need to, older people need to teach the younger people not to despise older people, not to disregard them. They need to do that by living in, in a certain way that's respectful, respectable. And, but it's important that a leader in the church, Titus here, because the direction is given to Titus, live in such a way that people hold him in honor and they respect him. And so I think older people, older women, older men need to do that too. So that younger people say, hey, it is, it is worth something to me to have older, older people, mentors, mentors who will help me. So live in, in that way. Don't let anyone disregard you. How do you obey that, by the way? How do you, how do you obey? Don't let anyone disregard you. <laughs> I, I'm, I read that as, as we get older, we tend to get crankier and all the stuff that comes with being older. And what he's saying here is don't do that. Yeah. And that's what I, I read it as don't become a stereotypical, yeah. that kind of person, but rather obey all the things I've told you so far. Yeah. What translation are you working with there? I'm in a, all right. Um, all right, look at the, what he says to the slaves. Look at the very last thing. We already said it the, at um, um, verse 10, at the very end. What does he say that he wants slaves to do? What's the ultimate goal for his instruction to slaves? Make God attractive. Make God attractive. Make the word of God attractive. Make the doctrine of God attractive. Make it look beautiful. So then older men and older women need to do that. Make aging in the gospel, look beautiful. Make it look like I want to be a godly old man when my time comes. So I call it living ever-increasing integrity. Yeah. I mean, w wouldn't it be valuable if old age were held in such esteem in a healthy local church because the older people are that mature in Christ? and have lived beautiful lives. That young people say, when I get old, I want to be like that. I'm not afraid of getting old, I want to get old. All right, I'm not gonna waste my life, but when I get old, I want to live in that way. That, that, now that's beautiful, make it, make it look beautiful. Adorn it. Yeah, go ahead. So in a, like a home fellowship where you have younger men, uh -huh. and the older men should be able to, when a question comes up or statements made, rebuke or make a suggestion based on scripture to to correct or to advise or to yeah. help yeah. based on scripture for sure you know and it's funny you mentioned uh, that aspect like what would you say is the is the stereotypical downside of older people i mean what i mean what's what young people see them and they have a reason for saying it that's the worst part of old people Senility, yeah, I mean, but I'm not talking about that. Let's say they're not senile. Thank you. Crotchety, what does that mean, crotchety? They're filtered for tolerance is kind. Yeah. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Irritable, crotchety. Yeah. Exactly. And, and there are reasons for it. We're not excusing it. But I think being, being in continual physical pain might be part of the problem. Could be a various type. You might have joint pain. You might have lower back pain. You might have, you know, you might even have pain from the illness, the cancer, or something that's taking you out of this world. Um, I don't know. But it's hard to be cheerful and pleasant and kind when you're in constant pain. But I would say if anyone on earth can do it, it's a mature Christian. Wouldn't you say? 
if anybody on earth can suffer well and not be crotchety, it should be Christians. I live in an independent living facility. The average age is about 85. And I found that the attitude on the part of those who have a personal relationship with Christ is far different from those who do not. Amen. Amen. So I've met some very sweet older people. All right. I've met some others that weren't. <laughs> and I know that there's two possible outcomes for me. I don't think things are looking good for me right now in terms of where I'm heading. I, I think it's more likely I'm going to be crotchety and irritable. I need to get hold of that. You know, I'm not joking. I mean, oh, it sounds funny, but pray for me because I just, I find myself more irritable than I used to be. I don't want to be like that. I want to be, you know, are you guys, any of you start struggling with crotchetiness? Is that even a word? I don't know. You're smiling as you're <laughs> I'm belying what I'm saying. I'm sorry. Well, it's being recorded, but it's a true statement. I find myself being irritable and crotchety, you know, and it's not godly. It's not loving. You know, there should be, you know, it's not Christian contentment. It is the opposite. It's Christian discontentment. Learning to be content in any and every situation, you know, just I can do everything through him who strengthens me. There is a way. To do it, but it's just hard. It's yeah, hard. Pastor Davis, I like the fact that you brought up the book of Judges because did this years ago. It talks about what they, how they started off and the generations. But when the younger generation came around uh, after Joshua passed, they, 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 you talked about it's a repeated basis how somebody was, you know, they tried to insert somebody, but they went back to doing evil. And that's not part of the Christian life. Well, actually, absolutely, since you mentioned that, it proves my thesis. Because what happened was the next generation didn't know the mighty works of God. How didn't they know it? No one is born knowing the mighty works of God. They have to be taught. And they weren't. And you see the constant repeating of they went to do an evil. Yeah. Evil doers and stuff. Yeah, you see the cycle. It's a repetitive thing. But I think if we're going to try it on for size, I think it's going to work. I think it's a good uniting theme for the book of Judges. This is what it looks like when people are not taught the, the, the sound theology, right doctrine. Rick Adams, would you mind closing us, brother, in prayer? Lord God, once again, we're thankful for the time you brought us to where we can reflect on our lives, but most especially uh, ponder you, your greatness, and your newness to us every day. Um, we are thankful for this teaching here. We are thankful for wisdom that is bestowed. And we pray that we can receive it and apply it in our lives. Most of all, Lord, we are thankful that you have made us aware that we are in need of a Savior. And beyond that, that you have provided that Savior. We ask that you would bless us as we leave here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.